can sum up someone's life in a lot of different ways. But I've found that you can sum up somebody's life in two documents. Two pieces of paper end up for many years summing up our life's achievements. One of those pieces of paper is your resume. Full of all your achievements, degrees, awards, jobs, moves, accomplishments. The other one's your eulogy. And they're very different documents. They're very uh, different in tone. They're very different in content. And in his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks talks about the fact that each of these documents actually reflect a different set of values and virtues. Brooks says, It occurred to me that there were two sets of virtues. The resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, honest, or faithful. Now, I don't want to start today just on a totally dark note. But I do want to be honest. That many times we find ourselves consumed with values and virtues and priorities and commitments that are fleeting, that don't last. And one of the greatest mistakes any of us make is living for things that are not important. Whether it's the analogy of climbing the ladder and realizing that you're propped up on the wrong building, or you scaling a mountain and realizing that it really didn't mean all that you thought it would, or, or giving yourself to a goal that you finally accomplish, and you get there and you go, is this all there is? See, for me, I, I've, I've recognized still on the front half of my life, hopefully, that eventually somebody is going to sit in my office one day. It's not me. Eventually, that resume that I'm building, eventually it's going to go in the trash. And one day, I hope it's a long way off, a bunch of people are going to stand over a giant hole in the ground or in front of a mausoleum, and they're going to have some thoughts, some feelings, some remembrances about me. And what do I want those things to be? These thoughts crystallized a few months ago when I traveled to Texas for my grandfather's funeral. And he lived a a very long life. He was 92 years old, if I had the math right. Yeah, 92 years old, almost 93. He was one month short of being married for 67 years. I mean, he lived about as full a life as you can live. But at that service, we were not talking about the buildings that he designed, though he did. We weren't talking about the campuses he master planned, though they still are alive and flourishing, doing well today. We didn't talk about the money that he made, the investments that he made, the trips that he took. What did we talk about? We talked about his character. Things that that remind me of this series we're in called The Fruit of the Spirit. Stuff like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is incredibly important stuff, not just because you're going to die one day and you hope people use these kind of words to describe you, because we're also living in a world that runs absolutely counter to this list, where we find ourselves every day online experiencing from others and manifesting ourselves the opposite of this list. Like, 
if I'm on social media in a given day, I don't go, wow, this place is just overwhelming with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's the opposite of this. It's a lack of love. It's the absence of peace. There is no patience to be found. Kindness is in short supply. There is no self-control. And so we are living in a world that will not form this in here. We are living in a time that, that will not, if you just go with the flow, you won't end up at a place where your eulogy virtues are there. And that's why we're talking about it today. And so I'm grateful for the last couple weeks to be able to have some time away with my family. Grateful for Trey and Tim and the messages they brought on peace and patience. So if you're tracking with the list today, we are right here. We're halfway done talking about kindness today. And if you're taking notes, here's our big idea. Kindness is a fresh fruit for a harsh world. Kindness is a fresh fruit for a harsh world. Now, you know, as I know, that if you're going to eat fruit, it's good that it's fresh. A few weeks ago, I was driving in to preach. I just started feeling a little bit weird on the way in. I called my wife and I said, hey, just FYI, I'm not really feeling great. I got here, told the team. I looked at Pastor Josh. I said, buddy, I hope you have a sermon in you because you might be preaching this morning. Um, I just was not feeling good. And my wife called me back and said, what did you have for breakfast? I said, I had that breakfast you made with some blueberries on top. She goes, did you like check the blueberries before you ate them? I said, no, I just threw them on there. She's like, yeah, they're bad. So luckily I, I made it through the sermon. None of you had any idea, but I've re been reminded in recent weeks that eating fresh fruit is important. And we live in a harsh world and kindness is a fresh fruit for our harsh world. In Galatians 5, where the fruit of the Spirit is listed, the word kindness is used and it's the Greek word christotes. Christotes. And it means goodness, kindness, or gentleness descriptive of one's disposition. So one's attitude, one's posture, one's uh, temperament or mindset as they show up in the world. Goodness, kindness, gentleness. But I love this kind of longer definition on the next slide. Kindness, this kindness, Christotes, is the grace which pervades the whole nature, mellowing all which would be harsh and austere. Left to our own devices, we drift towards harshness. Left to our own kind of proclivities, we tend to be harsh with others. And if we're honest, many of us are harsh with others because we're also harsh with ourselves. A lot of times when I'm, I'm around somebody who's really harsh with other people, I, I realize that that's just their inner voice talking out loud. That's how they talk to other people all the time. And that's how they talk to themselves. And what kindness does when it's a fruit that manifests in our life is it mellows and softens that which would, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, would be harsh and austere. So today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about five things that we need to know about this fruit of kindness. And here's the first one if you're taking notes. Kindness is God's pattern towards us. So though many of us are harsh with ourselves and harsh with others, God's pattern towards us is kindness. Going all the way back to the Old Testament. I've told you before, if, if you were to kind of figure out what is the most important word 
in the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, Genesis to Malachi, I believe it's this word right here, hesed. It's the Hebrew word for faithful love, covenant love, or loving kindness. It's how God treats his people. It's how God relates to his chosen people. And we see this in the book of Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord showing faithful love, hesed, justice, righteousness on the earth. If you're going to boast, don't boast that you're wise. If you're going to boast, don't boast that you're strong. If you're going to boast, don't boast that you're wealthy. Boast that you have experienced the faithful love, the covenant love, the loving kindness of God. Boast that God has been kind to you. And that's the reason why you're wise and strong. But it isn't just the Old Testament. For I delight in these things, as the Lord declared before me. It's the New Testament, too. In Romans 2.4, Paul writes, or do, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, his restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So if you've repented of your sins, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, if you've been baptized, if you've been made new, you experienced that because God was kind to you. And it was his kindness to you that opened the door for you to repent. I think we often think, well, it was God's, you know, obligation to me. He had to go this way. Or maybe it was God was so angry with me that I just, okay, I was scared and I, you know, repented. But it was actually God's kindness. Each of us have experienced the kindness of God. Later in Ephesians 2, Paul says, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If you've experienced the grace of God, you've experienced the kindness of God. And I would go even farther to say that God has been exceedingly kind. Not just a little bit kind. Not just like, you know, this much kind. Like a gallon of kindness. A five-gallon bucket of kindness. Lake Tahoe kindness. And, and before we go any further today, I just want you to pause. And I want you to reflect on how has God been kind person you're sitting next to. Maybe it's a person who's no longer here that you stood next to there and smiled and said, oh, that person's so nice. Maybe it's an experience that God gave you. Maybe it's a second chance that God gave you. Maybe it's wisdom and insight that God gave you. But here's my hunch. You will not in a way that reflects God if you don't reflect and embrace what's on the other side. 
And as you begin to reflect on and become aware of, oh my gosh, God has been so kind to me. He's been exceedingly kind to me. Over time, that, that wells up, that overflows into kindness for us. So we start here so that we'll recognize that God's pattern towards us from the beginning of our life till now and God's pattern with his people from Genesis till now has been kindness. But number two, kindness is also what neighbor love looks like in action. So when the greatest commandment says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that neighbor love is kindness. And I know of no better example of neighbor love than the story that Jesus tells in Luke 10. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Some of you know this passage, and you're like, oh, I know where we're going. Some of you will open up and see the header and go, I know this passage. It is one of the most well-known passages that Jesus ever taught. But I, I want to read it today in light of this concept of the kindness of God. Luke is the third of the gospel accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, the back half of your Bible, if you're new to your Bible, in a section called the New Testament. And here's what Jesus says in response to the question of who is my neighbor. This is what Jesus says. But wanting to justify himself, this man asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He took the question and he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hand of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road and when he saw the man who'd been beaten by the robbers, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, who was not a priest all the time, was called in in certain seasons to serve in the temple, when he arrived at the place and saw the man who was beaten in the ditch, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Not what you would use at home today. Typically, if somebody gets a scrape, you don't grab a bottle of Merlot and start pouring it on there, but that's what they use in their day. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is a day's wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, the man said. Jesus told him, Go and do the same. Now, that, now, the whole message today was on this passage. I could talk to you about who the Samaritan was. Why the Samaritan was the evil person in the eye of this man who was asking for help. Samaritan was a half-breed. Somebody compromised. Somebody who was evil and impure. Not the hero of any story. But what's unique about this story is the setup. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem is a dangerous road. Over 15 miles, you descend 3,400 feet. It's narrow, it's rocky, and there are many boulders. Imagine like you're kind of hiking through the backside of Watson Lake through the desert. Lots of places for people to hide. I'm typically worried about rattlesnakes when I'm hiking through there. They were worried about people. People would hide there. It was a dangerous road. We don't know if this man was by himself when he went on this route. If he was, the man would have been foolish. I mean, there's nothing in Jesus' story that says this man was an innocent victim. He could have been. 
Or he could have been somebody who decided to go for a hike by himself through an area that was known to have robbers and ambushers. Either way, he gets beaten up, left on the side of the road to die. And along the way comes a priest and a Levite, religious leaders, both of whom would not be able to do their job if they attended to this man. There were real consequences according to their laws that if they touched someone like this who'd been beaten up and bloodied, they'd be unclean. They couldn't go in the temple. For this Levite, it's his only time of the year he's ever going to the temple. So he had a whole other year to go to the temple. And so for these religious leaders, they thought of themselves. They said, if I go touch this guy, I'm not going to be able to do either what I need to do or I want to do. And so I'm going to think of myself and not him. But what the Samaritan does, the Samaritan doesn't think of himself, the Samaritan chooses kindness. And as, as we begin to kind of get into a later section, because we'll, we'll define kindness more specifically, but one of the things we see here is that kindness is unselfish. When you're being kind, you are not thinking of yourself first. These religious leaders thought of themselves and were therefore unkind, and they didn't render any aid. I don't do as many weddings as I used to when I was a college pastor. I did a lot more. But, but there's a lot of times when you're at weddings and, and you hear a passage of Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 13, which has been co-opted as the wedding chapter. I wish I could go back in their time machine with Paul and go, hey, buddy, you know, your writings are influencing billions of people. It's amazing how God's using you. Oh, and by the way, at weddings, they read 1 Corinthians 13. He's like, what? They use that at a wedding? It has nothing to do with the wedding. It had to do with the dysfunctional church. 1 Corinthians 12 is about the gifts. And 1 Corinthians 13 is about the fact that people weren't using their gifts of love. If you read 1 Corinthians 13 as a wedding, everybody kind of smiles, you know, hoping they'll get their food soon, move on to the reception. I know. That's why I'm not the pastor. If I do a wedding, it's be short, buddy. People want to eat and drink. No one's listening to you, especially the couple right there. They're just being kind of googly-eyed, you know? But 1 Corinthians 13, if you were sitting there in the moment when it was read for the first time, it would have been a... It would have been a slap across the face. Because it was written to a people who were not loving each other. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is love is patient and love is kind. And he was saying to those people, you are not patient and not kind. Yeah, you have gifts. You have teaching and you have prophecy and you have encouragement. But you have no love. You have no kindness. And so what neighbor love looks like in action is kindness. When we are loving our neighbor, when we're following the great commandment, we are being kind. Leanne, I promise to smack this side of my face next service. Number three, kindness is a fruit that is always in season. Kindness is a fruit that is always in season. In America, we have this weird thing where we eat the same food all year long. Some of us, if we're willing to pay for it, we will pay for blueberries all year long. Newsflash, blueberries are not always in season. And in other parts of the world, they only eat the fruit that is in season. And kindness, though, is a fruit that is always in season. We see this in 2 Timothy. 
where Timothy receives a word from Paul. It says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient. So he's not saying, hey, the Lord's servant must only quarrel sometimes. You know, must be gentle to some people. No, no, all the time. All the time kindness. Later on in Colossians, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And there is no footnote only Monday through Friday. Only with people who agree with you politically. Only with people who agree with your religious beliefs. Now, all of these statements are intended to always be true in every season. You say, Scott, why are you making this point? Because I have heard from so many followers of Jesus in the last five or six years that the era for kindness is over. That because our culture is becoming more hostile to Christianity, that we don't need to be kind anymore. That kindness will not get us where we want to be anymore. That being winsome is not a quality to care about anymore. It's a battle. The gloves are off. Kindness begins. And I'll be honest. That makes me very uncomfortable. And it makes me very sad. Because it raises a very important question. Does the standard flex based upon the world's views of Jesus Christ? Does the standard that we're called to as followers of Jesus, does it flex and go in season and out of season based upon the environment that we're in? Are these fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the others, are they only relevant or are some of them more relevant or more applicable or to be taken off the shelf or put on the shelf based upon the context that we're in? The answer is no. They're always in season. And so when we say, hey, you know what? Uh, Turn the other cheek, but I only have two cheeks. We say, hey, the, the season for kindness is over. What you're doing, let me just give you an image. You're putting yourself right here. And the Bible. When the fruits are only fruits for certain seasons, when there's a time to be loving and a time to be unloving, when there's a time to be kind and a time to be unkind, what you're saying is the Bible is right here, but you know what? My time right here is kind of over. And there's one place in the world you don't want to be. Above the Bible. Now, I know that it's becoming increasingly hard to follow Jesus. I know that it's becoming increasingly difficult to be kind to people who are nothing but kind. I know that it's difficult and challenging and not our nature. But Paul was killed for his faith. Do the math in your head. Ten of the twelve disciples were killed for their faith or left for dead. And so in that era and in our era, these fruits, they are always in season. 
And so I just want to invite you to ask the question, what's my posture towards the Bible? What's my posture towards God's Word? And am I allowing the, the season that I am in or the season that our culture is in to dictate to me which of these things I do or I don't do? And I just would encourage you that, that like kindness, all of the fruit of the Spirit are always all of them are always intended. Now, we'll get to next week, goodness. Because for those of you like, well, Scott, am I just a pushover because I'm kind? No, we'll get to that in a second. Next week is goodness, and it kind of provides a little bit of a, a balance or a, kind of a, a counterpoint to kindness. But I just want to encourage you that you're living in a world where you're going to hear people who tell you that the season for kindness is over. And to do that, you have to put yourself above God's word. And one of the reasons I think a lot of us get uncomfortable right now is number four. That kindness is a lot different than niceness. Kindness is a lot different than niceness. Many of us, when we hear kindness, our brain translates to niceness. Now, I am not the world's resident expert on the Bible. Some of you may know more of it than I do. I've not read all the 70 or 80 or 100 different English translations. But I took a few this week. And I looked through all of them. And I could not find any verses in the Bible with the word nice in them. Now this is interesting because we live in a culture where a couple of our like major cultural images in TV shows of Christians are nice guys. These two guys right here, Flanders and Kenneth. If you've ever seen The Simpsons or 30 Rock, you've seen these guys. And, and they are the quintessential Christian nice guys. I was talking with a friend of mine this week who's single, and she said, yeah, when a guy is like, oh, I don't want to date him, I'm like, oh, he's a nice guy. Not, not a compliment. You don't want to be a nice guy. <laughs> if you want to date, you don't want to be a nice guy. And I love what Sharon Hottie Miller says in her book, Nice. She says, the more I noticed this nice Christian mentality, the more I thought this is a false virtue in our culture, but it's also a false idol in the church. We don't see anywhere in the Bible that tells us to be nice. We're told to bear fruits of kindness and patience and gentleness and love, but nowhere are we told to be nice. So I think it's important today to distinguish between niceness and kindness. And so what is the difference? I'm going to give you some examples here. And I got a little handout for you later. So if you want to write these all down, you don't have to wear your handout. Here's the first one. Kindness is sacrificial, whereas niceness is self-preserving. This is the Good Samaritan. This is the priest and the Levite. When you're being nice, you're not giving yourself away in any way. But when you are kind to someone, especially someone who you don't feel deserves it, to be kind means to sacrifice yourself. Number two, kindness is humble, whereas niceness is self-righteous. Do you ever have somebody... And, and you think they're being nice to you, but you feel like they're better than you in their eyes? 
See, if you're going to be kind to somebody, that requires you to actually humble yourself. But you can be nice and still think you're better than somebody. Big difference. Kindness is about God and it's about others. Niceness is about you. When you're being kind, you're recognizing that God has called you to something and God is leading you to express yourself in some way to somebody else. It's about God and them. When you're thinking about being nice, you're totally self-absorbed. It's about you. Kindness is real. Niceness is fake. How do I know this? My mom. When I was a kid, be nice to them. Okay, I was. I didn't want to. I didn't mean it. But I didn't get in trouble. Niceness is not, is not real. It's fake. Kindness is genuine. It's authentic. Kindness is fake. Niceness is real. No one can make you be kind. But somebody can force you to be kind. And you feel it. You can, when you're on the receiving end of niceness, you know the person's not being kind to you. They're just faking. And I'll be honest, how many of you, deep down, want someone to fake care about you? Zero, right? And all too often, we default into niceness. And I just want to tell you, God is not calling you to be nice. That's too easy. Kindness is courageous, and niceness is the easy way. For those of you who think that, that kindness is like weakness or it's timid, no, no, kindness is clarity. Kindness is telling somebody the truth when you want to just tell them a lie. A couple weeks ago before I went on vacation, I took somebody to lunch to tell them some things that were bothering me. I could have emailed them. That would have been really easy. I could have texted them, that'd be even easier. I could have ghosted them, that'd have been the easiest of all. But I said, this is a hard thing to hear, and they deserve to hear it from me in person, and here you are. That was, that was kindness. I didn't want to do it. I showed up a little bit nervous. And I said, you know what? I've been where they are. And I didn't get that for them. So I want to give them what somebody didn't give me. Kindness is being clear. Kindness is courageous. And then finally, kindness requires strength, whereas niceness reveals weakness. The kindest people are strong people. Settling for niceness reveals our weakness. Now let's be honest. We're all weak. We're all weak. But when the Spirit produces kindness in us, it requires the strength that comes from God. Big, big difference between kind and nice. And remember, God doesn't call us to be nice. Number five, kindness is difficult when you're in a hurry. Kindness is, is difficult when you're in a hurry. Years ago, I, I heard a story from a pastor named John Ortberg. He'd moved from a small city in California to Chicago. Big city, big, big church. And the pace was way different. And a few months in, he was overwhelmed. Maybe you've moved to a new city or a new job, and you're just like, man, this pace is so much more than I'm used to. 
and he was struggling. He wasn't doing well. He wasn't enjoying this opportunity. So he did what a lot of us would do. He phoned a friend. So he called his mentor, a really wise man. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm in this new setting. It's a bigger city. It's a bigger church. It's a different culture. I feel overwhelmed. I'm not doing well. This is the dream job I wanted, but I'm miserable. And he said, what do you want? What, what should I do? And his mentor, a, a brilliant man named Dallas Willard, said this. He said, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And so John, being the type A guy he was, he Okay, what else? He said, no, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's it. That's the word. See, I will tell you, an epiphany came on me as I was walking through this message after working with Trey on his and Tim and my first couple. Hurry will choke the fruit of the Spirit out of your life. Now, I'm weird. I'm one of only two pastors I've ever met that's married to a lawyer. Not the common pattern, you know. But my wife, in addition to being a lawyer, is a prosecutor. In addition to being a prosecutor, the first few years we were married, she was a domestic violence prosecutor. Which is way harder than my job grueling work. But I learned some things. And one of the things I learned is the difference between choking and straining. And I'm going to teach you today. When you put your hands on someone's throat, you are strangling them. You are not choking them. Choking happens on the inside. You choke on food. Maybe the water goes down the wrong pipe. That's choking. So don't ever say, well, he choked me. No, no, no. You strangled me. Big difference. And I'll tell you why. Hurry will choke the fruit out of your life. Chris M. in the first week talked to us that when we are living a hurried life, it's hard for us to love him. When Dave had the interview up here, he talked about the fact that joy shows up as a surprise, and if you don't have time for it, you miss it. Trey talked about this peace. If we're going to experience peace, it requires us to live at a certain pace. I mean, patience is kind of the enemy of hurry, right? And then kindness, if you're like the the Levite and the priest, and you're in a hurry, you skip over the opportunity to be kind. And some of you are like, Scott, you don't understand. I'm busy. My life is very busy. Let me break it down for you. Busy is a product of your schedule. Hurry is a product of your soul. And that's why hurry chokes the fruit of the Spirit out of your life. Because from your soul, like a plant that's sick on the inside, your, your soul chokes out the kindness. Your soul chokes out the love and the joy and the peace. And many times when your schedule stops being busy, you continue to move at that same pace. And it's not because of your schedule, it's because of your soul. And so as we're at this halfway point in this series, I just want to encourage you, like Dallas encouraged John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Because hurry is the enemy of all the fruit that God wants to bring forth. And remember, 
you can't make yourself understand. You can't make yourself more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind. These are outcomes of the Spirit's work in you. And we want to collaborate with the Spirit, not choke it down. Don't be inside because of our own pride. So I hope you've seen that, that kindness is a fresh fruit for our hearts as well. And I want to give you some practices today to implement. And the first one is this. I want you to reflect on the story of God's kindness towards you by finishing this sentence. God was so kind to me when blank. So if you've got a pencil or a pen and a handout today, I would love for you to just write down one thing in that blank. Maybe it's what you thought about earlier. Or something that's come to mind for you during this message. I'd encourage you to give yourself more time than just this moment to think about this question. I've been thinking about this question because six years ago today was the first time I preached a sermon as the lead pastor of Cornerstone. And God was so kind to me when he allowed me to come here. I was going after a different job. And they said no. And I was stuck. I'm so glad they said no. I didn't want that job. As I look back, God protected me from that. And God led me here. It was not where I planned to be. It was not on my radar. My wife said yes to it two months before I did. I was the slow one. But God was so kind to me, and there are so many things over the last six years in my life that would not have happened in me, around me, for me, had I not come here. God was so kind to me, giving me not what I wanted, but what he knew I needed. So I'd encourage you to start with thinking about that. Number two, when tempted to react to difficult people this week, I want to encourage you to review the kindness versus niceness chart. We've got one of these for everybody as they leave today to take home with you. We've kind of made it Bible-sized to kind of go in your Bible. One little comment, because I know all of us are broken, sinful people. Please do not use this as a weapon against other people. With your spouse or your kids... Go, man, I, I see this on here, and I don't see kindness. I, this is not like that. Do not twist this. But for a lot of us who are more familiar with niceness, I wanted to give this to you to help you understand what, what the real calling is from God in our conversation. So this week when you get stuck, like, ah, oh, is that what I'm called to do? Go back to this. And then number three. With the people you struggle to be kind towards, and let's be honest, we all have people that it's hard to be kind to. Do not look at them right now. I didn't say if on here. This is with. I know you have people. With the people you struggle to be kind to, ask yourself, what would I do for them if I were Jesus? That's the story of the Good Samaritan. What would I do for them if I was Jesus? And then flip the question. What would I do for them if they were Jesus? And that's the gut punch, right? Matthew 25. Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. 
when he does come, when I come to repentance, when I take this time away, when I take this time away. We are called to not only go, hey, what would Jesus do in my situation? But we are called to view every person as someone who was made in the image of God, who was created in a mother's womb by God. Every person is someone for whom Jesus gave his life. So seeing them, what would I do for them if they were Jesus? That's why niceness is so easy for us. It's so low human. And that's why you can't do this without recognizing just how much kindness Jesus we thank you so much for your kindness towards us we thank you for the kindness you showed us when we hadn't repented when we weren't pursuing you Jesus we confess that this is a hard and difficult calling we live in an unkind age in an unkind makes sense why people would say the era for kindness is over. But Jesus, you you remain the same. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Your word stands forever and it does not change. So we pray today, I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends who are in this room, who are watching at home, who will watch this later. I pray that you overwhelm them and flood them with an awareness of just how kind you have been to them. I pray that you awaken them in the morning, maybe even in the middle of the night at least, with an awareness of your kindness towards them. And I pray that that awareness would well up like a spring to overflowing in them, that kindness would bubble out of their life, not because they're somehow special or unique, but because you've come to well richly in them and they are so aware of your kindness. You've given us your kindness. You didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. And yet we have an opportunity to receive it. So I pray this week with the people who are easy to be kind to and those that are hard. I pray that you would express and you would bear fruit in us. Our world can go.